Chapter 13 Where sin occurs, God cannot wisely prevent it. It must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Matthew 18.7 It is impossible but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. Luke 17.1 An offense, as used in this passage, is an occasion of falling into sin. It is anything that causes another to sin and fall. It is plain that the author of the offense is understood of in this passage as being voluntary and as sinful in his act, or else the curse of God would not be denounced upon him. Consequently, the passage assumes that this sin is in some sense necessary and unavoidable. What is true of this sin in this respect is true of all other sin. Indeed, any sin may become an offense in the sense of a temptation to others to sin, and therefore its necessity and unavoidableness would then be affirmed by these texts. The doctrine of these texts, therefore, is that sin, under the government of God, cannot be prevented. I intend to examine this doctrine and to show that, nevertheless, sin is completely inexcusable as to the sinner. Then I intend to answer some objections and conclude with a few remarks. 1. When we say it is impossible to prevent sin under the government of God, the statement still calls for another inquiry, and that is, where does this impossibility lie? Is it on the part of the sinner or on the part of God? Which is true, that the sinner cannot possibly refrain from sinning or that God cannot prevent him from sinning. The first supposition answers itself, for it could not be sin if it were completely unavoidable. It might be his unfortunate situation, but nothing could be more unjust than to attribute it to him as his sin. We will better understand where this impossibility does and must lie if we will first review some of the elementary principles of God's government. Let us then consider that God's government or rule over people is moral and is known to be such by every intelligent being. By the term moral, I mean that it governs by motives and does not move by physical force. It adapts itself to mind and not to matter. It contemplates mind as having intellect to understand truth sensibility to appreciate its relevance to happiness, conscience to judge of what is right, and a will to determine a course of voluntary action in view of God's claims. We see that God governs mind, but does not do the same in regard to matter. The planetary worlds are controlled by quite a different sort of agency. God does not move them in their orbits by motives, 
but by a physical agency. All people know that this government is moral by their own consciousness. When its precepts and its penalties come before their minds, they are conscious that an appeal is made to their voluntary powers. They are never conscious of any physical agency trying to force their obedience. God's government implies in us the power to will or not to will, to will what is right or to will what is wrong, to choose to accept or to refuse the great good that God promises. It also implies intelligence. The beings to whom law is addressed are capable of understanding it. They also have a conscience by which they can appreciate and must affirm its obligations. You need to generally distinguish between the influence of motive on mind and of mechanical force upon matter. The former implies it being voluntary. The latter does not. The former is adapted to mind and has no adaptation to matter. The latter equally is adapted to matter, but has no possible application to mind. In God's government over the human mind, all is voluntary. Nothing is coerced as by physical force. Indeed, it is impossible that physical force would directly influence mind. Compulsion is precluded by the very nature of moral agency. Where compulsion begins, moral agency ends. If it were possible for God to force the will as He forces the moon along in its orbit, to do so would subvert the very idea of a moral government. Neither praise nor blame could be attached to any actions of beings who were moved by force. Persuasion brought to bear upon the mind is always such in its nature that it can be resisted. By the very nature of the case, God's creatures must have power to resist any amount of even His persuasion. There can be no power in heaven or earth to coerce the will as matter is coerced. The nature of mind forbids its possibility. If it were possible, it would still be true that in just so far as God should coerce the human will, he would cease to govern morally. God is infinitely wise. People can no more doubt this than they can doubt their own existence. He has infinite knowledge. He knows everything, all objects of knowledge, and he knows them all perfectly. He is also infinitely good. His will is always conformed to his perfect knowledge and is always controlled by infinite benevolence. His infinite goodness implies that he does the best he can, always and everywhere. In no instance does he ever fail to do the very best he can do, so that he can appeal to every person and say, what more can I do to prevent sin than I am doing? Indeed, he appeals in this way to every intelligent mind. He made this appeal through Isaiah to the ancient Jews. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Isaiah 5, 3 and 4. Every moral agent in the universe knows that God has done the best he could do in regard to sin. Do not each one of you know this? Certainly you do. He himself, in all his infinite wisdom, could not suggest a better course than that which he has taken. People know this truth so well that they can never know it better. At some future time, you might realize it more fully when you will come to see its millions of illustrations drawn out before your eyes. But no demonstration can make its proof more perfect than it is to your own minds today. Sin does, in fact, exist under God's government. God is either to blame or not to blame for this sin. Everyone knows that God is not to blame for this sin, for man's own nature affirms that he would prevent it if he wisely could. Certainly, if he was able wisely to prevent sin in any case where it actually occurs, then not to do so nullifies all our conceptions of his goodness and wisdom. He would be the greatest sinner in the universe if, with power and wisdom adequate to prevent sin, he had failed to prevent it. Let me mention here also that what God cannot do wisely, he cannot, speaking morally, do at all. For he cannot act unwisely. He cannot do things that wisdom forbids. To do so would be to undeify himself. The supposition would make him cease to be perfect, and this would be equivalent of him ceasing to be God. We could also look at it this way. If he were to intercede unwisely to prevent a sinner from sinning, he himself would sin. I speak now of each instance in which God does not in fact intercede to prevent sin. In any of these cases, if he were to intercede unwisely to prevent sin, he would prevent someone from sinning at the expense of sinning himself. Here, then, is the case. A sinner is about to fall due to temptation, or, in more correct language, is about to rush into some new sin. God cannot wisely prevent his doing so. Now what will be done? Will he let that sinner rush on to his chosen sin and self-made ruin? Or will he step forward unwisely, sin himself, and incur all the unpleasant consequences of such a step? God lets the sinner bear his own responsibility. Why should he not? Who would want to have God sin? This is a full explanation of every case in which man does in fact sin, and God does not prevent it. This is not conjecture, but is logical certainty. 
no truth can be more overwhelmingly and necessarily certain than this. I once heard a minister say in a sermon, It is not irrational to suppose that in each case of sin, it occurs as it does because God cannot prevent it. After he stepped down from the pulpit, I said to him, Why did you leave the matter like that? You left your hearers to infer that perhaps it might be in some other way that this was only a possible theory, while some other theory might have been even more probable. Why did you not say that this theory is certain and must necessarily be true? The impossibility of preventing sin does not lie in the sinner, but entirely with God. It should be remembered that sin is nothing else than an act of free will that is always committed against one's conviction of right. Indeed, if someone did not know that selfishness is sin, it would not be sin in his case. Once more, Sin is always committed against and despite motives that are of infinitely greater weight than those that lead one to sin. The very fact that his conscience condemns the sin is his own judgment on the question, proving that in his own view the motives to sin are infinitely contemptible when put in the scale to measure those against the sin in question. Every sinner knows that sin is a willful abuse of his own powers as a moral agent. It is an abuse of those noblest powers of his being, in view of which he is especially said to be made in the image of God. Made like God with these exalted attributes, capable of determining his own voluntary activities intelligently if he wants to do so, and in accordance with his reason and his conscience if he desires, he still in every act of sin abuses and degrades these powers, tramples down in the very dust the image of God stamped on his being, and with the capacities of becoming an angel, makes himself a fool. Clothed with a dignity of nature similar to that of his Maker, he chooses to debase himself to the level of beasts and of devils. With a face naturally looking upward, with an intelligence that grasps the great truths of God, with a reason that accepts and affirms the great necessary principles involved in his moral duties and relations, and with abilities that qualify him to sit on a nation's throne, he still says, let me take this glorious image of God and dishonor it in the dust. Let me cast myself down until there will be no lower depth of degradation to which I can sink. In every instance, sin is a dishonoring of God. Every sinner must know this. It rejects his authority, disregards his advice, and mistreats his love. Truly does God himself say, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? 
And if I be a master, where is my fear? Malachi 1.6 What sinner ever imagined that God neglects to do anything he wisely can do to prevent sin? If this is not true, what is conscience except a lie and a delusion? Conscience always affirms that God is clear of all guilt in reference to sin. In every instance in which conscience condemns the sinner, it necessarily must and actually does fully acquit God. These comments are enough to show that sin in every instance of its commission is entirely inexcusable. Next, we will note some objections. 1. If God is infinitely wise and good, why do we need to pray at all? If He will certainly do the best possible thing always and all the good He can do, why do we need to pray? I answer that it is because His infinite goodness and wisdom require us to do so. Who could ask for a better reason than this? If you believe in His infinite wisdom and goodness and make this belief the basis of your objection, you will certainly, if honest, be satisfied with this answer. I also answer that it might be wise and good for God to do many things, if he is asked in prayer that he could not wisely do if not asked. You cannot therefore conclude that prayer never changes the course that God voluntarily pursues. 2. You offer another objection and ask why we should pray to God to prevent sin if he cannot prevent it. If, under the circumstances in which sin exists, God cannot, as you believe, prevent sin, why go to Him and ask Him to prevent it? I answer that we pray for the very purpose of changing the circumstances. This is our reason. Prayer does change the circumstances. If we step forward and offer fervent, effectual prayer, this very much changes the state of the case. Look at Moses pleading with God to spare the nation after their great sin in the matter of the golden calf. God said to him, Let me alone, that I may destroy them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Exodus 32.10, Deuteronomy 9.14 no, said Moses, for what will the Egyptians say? What will all the nations say? They have said for a long time that the God of that people will not be able to get them through that vast wilderness. Now, therefore, what will you do for your great name? Then he said, Yet now, if thou wilt, forgive their sin, and if not, Blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Exodus 32, 32. This prayer that came up before God changed the circumstances of the case. Because of this prayer, God could honorably spare the nation. It was honorable for him to answer this prayer. 
3. For yet another objection, you asked, Why did God create moral agents at all if he foresaw that he could not prevent their sinning? I answer that it is because he saw that in general it was better to do so. He could prevent some sin in this race of moral agents. He could overrule what he could not wisely prevent so as to bring out from it a great deal of good. He saw that it was better in the long run, with all the results before him, to create than to cease. Therefore, wisdom and love made it necessary that he should create. Having the power to create a race of moral beings, having power to convert and save a vast multitude of them, and also having power to overrule the sin he would not prevent so that it should result in immense good, how could he cease to create as he did? 4. But if God cannot prevent sin, will he not be unhappy? No, he is entirely satisfied to have offered us redemption and accept the results. 5. Some will say, Is this not limiting the Holy One of Israel? No, it is not a proper limitation of God's power to say that He cannot do anything that is unwise. Nor do we limit His power when we say that He does not move the mind just as He moves a planet that is not a proper subject of power that is absurd and impossible in its own nature. Yet these are the only areas in which we have spoken of any limitations to his power. But, you ask, if God could not prevent sin by annihilating each moral agent the instant before, he would sin. Undoubtedly he could but we say that if this were wise, he would have done it. He has not done it, certainly not in all cases, and therefore it is not always wise. But you say that God, then, should give him more of his Holy Spirit. I answer that he does give all he can wisely under existing circumstances. To suppose that he should give more than he does, with circumstances being the same, is to criticize his wisdom or his goodness. Some people seem greatly horrified at the idea of setting limits to God's power, yet they make assumptions that inevitably criticize his wisdom and his goodness. Such people need to consider that if we choose between limiting his power on the one hand or his wisdom and his love on the other hand, it is infinitely more honorable to him to adopt the former alternative than the latter. To strike a blow at his moral attributes is to annihilate his throne. Further, let it be also considered, as we have already suggested, that you do not in any offensive sense limit his power when you assume that he cannot do things that are naturally impossible and that he cannot act unwisely. Let these remarks be sufficient 
to answer the objections. I know that you who are Bible students will say that this must be true. You are used to noticing the action of your own moral powers. You have a moral sense, and it has been in some good degree developed. You know that it is entirely impossible for God to act unwisely. You know he must act benevolently, always doing the best thing he can do. He has given you a nature that affirms, asserts, and recognizes these truths, or else there could be no conscience. The presence and action of a conscience implies that these great truths respecting the moral nature of God are indisputably affirmed in your own soul by your own moral nature. I address you, therefore, as those who have a conscience. Suppose it were otherwise. Suppose all that we call conscience, the entire moral side of your nature, would suddenly drop out, and I would find myself speaking to a mob of moral imbeciles, being completely void of a conscience. How desolate the scene would be! However, I am not speaking to such an audience. Therefore, I am sure that you will understand and appreciate what I say. Remarks 1. We may see the only sense in which God could have allowed the existence of sin. It is simply negative. He did not intend to prevent it in any case where it does actually occur. He does not intend to make moral agents sin, not, for example, Adam and Eve in the garden or Judas in the matter of betraying Christ. All he planned to do himself was to leave them with only a certain amount of restraint, as much as he could wisely impose, and then, if they would sin, let them bear the responsibility. He left them to act freely, and he did not positively prevent their sinning. He never uses means to make people sin. He only abstains from using unwise means to prevent their sinning. Therefore, his agency in the existence of sin is only negative. 2. The existence of sin does not prove that it is the necessary means of the greatest good. Some of you are aware that this point has been often brought up in theological discussions. I do not now intend to go into it at length, but will only say that in all cases wherein people sin, they could obey God instead of sinning. The question here is, if they were to obey rather than sin, would not a greater good result? We have these two reasons for the affirmative. One, that by natural tendency, obedience promotes good and disobedience promotes evil. And two, that in all those cases, God earnestly and positively demands obedience. It is fair to presume that he would demand that which would secure the greatest good. 
3. The human conscience always justifies God. This is an undeniable fact, a fact of universal knowledge. The proof of it can never be made stronger, for it stands recorded in each person's heart. A very remarkable book by Edward Beecher has recently appeared, though, titled The Conflict of Ages, which is obviously built upon the opposite assumption, that the human conscience does not categorically condemn people, but except under the light of this specific theory, it does, in fact, condemn God. This theory, adopted presumably to place God against the human conscience, holds that there was a pre-existing state in which we all lived and sinned, and we there forfeited our title to a moral nature, unbiased toward sinning. There we had a fair probation. Here, if we suppose this to be the commencement of our moral agency, we do not have a fair trial period, and conscience therefore does not, and in truth cannot, justify God except on the assumption of a pre-existent state. The entire book, therefore, is built upon the assumption of a conflict between the human conscience and God. That is a shocking assumption. A brother remarked to me about this that it seemed to him to be the most outrageous and blasphemous indictment against God that could be drawn. Yet the author intended no such thing. He is undoubtedly a good man, but in this particular area, he is egregiously mistaken. The fact is that conscience always condemns the sinner and justifies God. It could not affirm obligation without justifying God. The real controversy, therefore, is not between God and the conscience, but between God and the heart. In every instance in which sin exists, conscience condemns the sinner and justifies God. This of itself is a perfect and sufficient answer to the whole doctrine of that book it knocks out the only and whole foundation on which it is built. If that book is true, then people never would have had a conscience until that book was published, read, understood, and believed. No one would have ever been convicted of sin until he came to see that he had existed in a previous state and began his sinning there. Yet the facts are contrary to this. Everywhere in all ages, with no regard to this book and with no inclination to wait for its refined knowledge everywhere and through all time, the human conscience has stood up to condemn each sinner, to compel him to sign his own death warrant and to acquit his maker of all blame. These are the facts of human nature and life. 4. Conversion consists precisely in the heart's consent to these decisions of the conscience. 
It is for the heart to come over to the ground occupied by the conscience and to thoroughly assent to it as right and true. Conscience has been speaking for a long time. It has always held one doctrine and has long been resisted by the heart. Now, in conversion, the heart comes over and gives its full assent to the decisions of conscience, that God is right and that sin and himself, a sinner, are entirely wrong. Do any of you want to know how you may become a Christian? This is how. Let your heart justify God and condemn sin, even as your own conscience does. Let your voluntary powers yield to the necessary affirmations of your reason and conscience. Then all will be peaceful within, because all will be right. But you say, I am trying to do this. Yes, I know this is the case with some of you, who you are trying to resist to your utmost. You settle down, as it were, with your whole weight, while God would gladly draw you by His truth and Spirit. Yet you imagine that you are really trying to surrender your heart to God. This is a most unexplainable delusion. 5. In light of this subject, we can see the reason for a general judgment. God intends to clear himself from all allegation of wrong in the matter of sin before the entire moral universe. Strange facts have transpired in his universe, and strange insinuations have been made against his course. These matters must all be set right. He will take time enough for this. He will wait until all things are ready. Obviously, he could not bring out his great day of trial until the deeds of earth have all been performed, until all the events of this wondrous drama have had their full development. Until then, he will not be ready to make a full expose of all his doings. Then he can and will do it most triumphantly and gloriously. The revelations of that day will undoubtedly show why God did not intervene to prevent every sin in the universe. Then he will satisfy us as to the reasons he had for allowing Adam and Eve to sin and for letting Judas betray his master. We know now that God is wise and good, although we do not know all the specific reasons for his conduct in the permission of sin. He will then reveal those specific reasons as far as it may be best and possible. No doubt he will then show that his reasons were so wise and good that he could not have done better. 6. Sin will then appear infinitely inexcusable and abhorrent. It will then be seen inexpressibly blameworthy and guilty in its true relationship toward God and His intelligent creatures. Let me give you an example. Suppose a son has gone far away from the paths of obedience and virtue, 
He has had one of the best of fathers, but he would not hear his counsel. He had a wise and affectionate mother, but he sternly resisted all the appeals of her tenderness and tears. Despite the most watchful care of parents and friends, he went astray. As someone foolishly determined to ruin himself, he pushed on, unconcerned of the sorrow and grief he brought upon those he should have honored and loved. At last, the consequences of such a course stand revealed. The guilty youth finds himself ruined in health, in fortune, and in good name. He has sunk far too low to retain even self-respect. Nothing remains for him but agonizing reflections on past foolishness and sin. Hear him lament his own desires. I have almost killed my honorable father, and I had completely broken my mother's heart long ago. All that foolishness and sin in a son could do, I have done, to bring down their gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. It is no wonder that having done so much to ruin my best friends, I have pulled down a double ruin on my own head. No sinner ever deserved to be doubly damned more than me. And so truth flashes upon his soul. His heart trembles and his conscience thunders condemnation. So it must be with every sinner when all his sins against God will stand revealed before his eyes, and there will be nothing left for him except intense and unqualified self-condemnation. 7. God's omnipotence is no guarantee to anyone that either himself or any other sinner will be saved. I know the Universalist affirms it to be. He will ask, Does not the fact of God's omnipotence taken in connection with his infinite love prove that all people will be saved? I answer no. It does not prove that God will save one soul. Even with so much proof of God's perfect wisdom, love, and power, we could not conclude that He would save even one sinner. We might just as reasonably suppose that He would send the whole human race to hell. How could we know what His wisdom would determine? How could we know what the necessities of his government might demand? In fact, the only basis we have for the belief that he will save any sinner is not at all our assumption from his wisdom, love, and power, but is entirely and only his own declarations as to this matter. Our knowledge is entirely from revelation. God has said so, and this is all we know about it. 8. How bitter the reflections that sinners must have on their deathbeds, 
and how fearfully agonizing it must be when they pass behind the veil and see things in their true light. When you have seen a sinner dying in his sins, have you ever thought about what a dreadful thing it is for a sinner to die? You notice the lines of anguish on his face. You see the look of despair. You observe that he cannot bear to hear about the dreadful future. There he lies, and death advances in its stern assault. The poor victim struggles in vain against his dreaded foe. He sinks and sinks. His pulse runs lower and still lower. Look into his glazed eye. Observe that withered brow. It seems that he has stopped breathing. But all at once he stares as one frightened. He throws up his hands wildly, screams frightfully, sinks down, and is gone to return no more. Where is he now? He is not beyond the realm of thought and reflection. He can see back into the world he has left. He can still think. Sadly, his misery is that he can do nothing except think. As the prisoner in his solitary cell said, I could bear torture or endure toil, but oh, to have nothing to do except to think, to hear the voice of friends no more, to say not a word, to do nothing from day to day, from year to year except to think, that is awful. It is the same with the lost sinner. Who can measure the misery of unceasing, self-agonizing thought? While you are yet alive, when at any time your thoughts weigh uncomfortably upon you and you feel that you will almost go insane, you can find some drop of comfort for your fevered lips. You can, for a few moments at least, fall asleep, and so forget your sorrows and find a brief rest. But, oh, when you will reach the world where the wicked find no rest, where there can be no sleep, where not one drop of water can reach you to cool your tongue, how can your heart endure or your hands be strong in that dreadful hour? God tried in vain to cleanse and save you. You fought against him and pulled down on your guilty head a fearful damnation. 9. What infinite consolation will remain to God after he will have closed up the entire scenes of earth. He has banished the wicked and has taken home the righteous to his arms of love and peace. He says, I have done all I wisely could do to save the human race. I made sacrifices cheerfully. I sent my beloved son gladly. I waited as long as it seemed wise to wait, 
and now it only remains to overrule all this pain and woe for the utmost good, and to rejoice in the joy of the redeemed forevermore. These are the guilty lost. Their groans roll out and echo up the walls of their pit of woe. It is only so much evidence to those who are holy that God is good and wise and will surely sustain His throne in justice and righteousness forever. It teaches most impressive lessons upon the dreadful destruction of sin. Let it stand there and bear its testimony in order to warn others against a path so shameful and a fate so dreadful. Some of our students, maybe even some of our own children, could be there in that world of woe. However, God is just, and His throne is undefiled of their blood. It will not spoil the eternal joy of His kingdom that they would pull down such damnation on their heads. They insisted that they would take the responsibility, and now they have it. Sinner, do you not care about this today? Will you seek God about your salvation? I can tell you when you will not think this is inconsequential. When the great bell of time will toll the death knell of earth and call her millions of sons and daughters to the final judgment, you will not be in a mood to fool around. You will certainly be there one day soon. It will be a time for serious thought, a terrible time of dread. Are you ready to face its revelations and decisions? Or do you say, Enough! Enough! I have long enough opposed His grace and rejected His love. I will now give my heart to God. I will forevermore be His alone.